Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. With health care information changing daily amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, little attention has been given to its effect on one of the most sensitive parts of our bodies, our eyes. With reports that the virus can cause some eye problems and the proximity of eye health professionals to patients during eye examinations, COVID-19 has implications for eye health and eye health professionals. Today, my guest is Dr. Reshma Katira, an ophthalmologist with the Retina Group of Washington. Dr. Katira will talk about eye infection and contamination issues related to COVID-19. She will also discuss how to protect our eyes from the virus and the new policies and procedures eye care professionals have adopted to ensure safety for them and their patients. So welcome, Dr. Katira, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for bringing light on this important issue. Well, I'm sure you're going to share a lot of information. So let's let's start our conversation by asking you to explain the different categories of eye care professionals and the, the type of care that each provides. Um, I think this, this is important, and I'm sure you're going to share this, to tell us how older adults then can decide which uh, person to visit when they have eye problems. Okay. Just starting with the basics, to quote the Eye Care Institute, ophthalmologists are medical doctors and they're trained to diagnose all eye diseases as well as to surgically treat patients dealing with an ocular disorder or disease. Um, So uh, medical doctors, so we go through medical school after college, uh, in addition to a four-year residency program, which is very intense on hands-on learning, seeing patients, and as many possible uh, different disease processes as you can, in addition to treating as many surgical types of um, uh, conditions that you can. Uh, Optometrists, on the other hand, uh, focus on vision care and correction to vision change diagnoses. So they go through four years of optometry school after college, and um, some of them are very good at screening for eye care conditions as well, which is an important tool uh, for patients to, you know, diagnose and then as needed treat uh, conditions of their eyes. And you might want to just explain, because I know folks probably have also heard of opticians and give us a quick definition of what is an optician. An optician is typically trained to more uh, help with the fitting of glasses. Oftentimes, opticians will help um, optometrists and ophthalmologists in their office in terms of sometimes they're trained hands-on with the basics of refraction, but more commonly they're trained in terms of, you know, the actual fitting of glasses for patients and adjusting the glasses and line, you know, measuring uh, the focal point uh, for those glasses to be made correctly. Okay. So getting back to my question then, so based on what you've said, it sounds like if an older adult has a more serious eye problem, the first person that they should see would be uh, an ophthalmologist. Right. The American Academy of Ophthalmology recommends that everyone over the age of 50 years old or anyone with any significant health conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, 
anyone who has a family history of an eye care condition um, should see an ophthalmologist at least yearly. And after that, depending upon what the doctor finds, you know, more or less from there on. Well, that's a good segue into my next question is, well, we want to talk a lot about COVID today. I think it would be helpful for the listeners to hear you explain and give an overview of the most common age-related eye diseases of older adults, because folks who might be listening and may have one of these conditions might wonder, well, gee, is there some possibility that because I have this condition, I might get COVID? So help us understand a little bit more what these IDs, common eye diseases are and what um, if there's any possibility of or relationship with COVID. Uh, so the main things that we see in our office are um, the classic ones are cataract formation, glaucoma, age-related macular degeneration, and diabetic retinopathy. I would say those are probably the most common things that ophthalmologists see in their office. And it's important for folks to screen these for these conditions and so that they can get the treatment they need and when they need it. Um, particularly, I tell my patients with macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, that we're better at preventing vision loss than we are at getting it back once it's gone. So if you have one of these conditions, it's important to know about it so that preventative measures can be taken for vision loss. And is there, well, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say just the second part of your question yes. is that most of the patients who have these conditions are over the age of 50. Certainly patients, um, those patients have more of a tendency to have other conditions that can decrease the immune system, such as diabetes. And those are definitely the patients that the CDC has rec uh, recognized as more high risk to develop COVID. And have you, in your practice so far, I mean, especially right now, since things are not getting any better, has there been many people that you have seen um, that with these conditions that may have um, also uh, contracted COVID or or know of maybe colleagues that, that might have had this experience? Uh, fortunately, I have not seen any of my staff members or patients who developed COVID uh, directly. Um, I think at this point, all of us know somebody who's developed it um, and hopefully recovered and not gotten too sick. Um, I definitely have several colleagues who've had staff members um, develop COVID um, usually from outside the office. Uh, luckily, it seems that most doctor's offices are taking precautions um, to help prevent transmission within the offices. So I have not had a colleague tell me that they've had cer certainly an outbreak going through their office. Well, that's, that's good news. And we're going to be talking more about those uh, precautions a little later in the show. But I would assume that people would want to hear from you can COVID-19 cause temporary or permanent eye damage? Uh, we're still figuring out what COVID is capable of, and we're seeing all sorts of reports of kind of different things that it causes. Um, the main thing it can cause with the eye, we know in about 1% to 3% of patients, it can cause sort of a pink eye. Um, and pink eye is a, is a viral conjunctivitis, and COVID being a virus can cause symptoms just like pink eye. And so, and that's, is that the same as conjunctivitis, is it, did you say? So there are different kinds of conjunctivitis. Okay. Um, the most common are 
viral, uh, bacterial, allergic, and kind of a rosacea is what we call blepharitis. Um, so conjunctivitis in general is a condition that can cause sort of lid swelling, redness and swelling of the white part of the eye, we call the conjunctiva, um, and increased discharge and tearing of the eye. So is there a difference then in terms of, you said there's different types. So if there's bacterial, I would assume that it could be treated with some kind of antibiotic, but if it's viral, it can't, what would you tell us? So typically with viral pink eye, mostly we just do supportive measures. Just like when somebody has a cold, usually the doctor will recommend that they take like a decongestant and, you know, us basically take, you know, do comfort measures um, and let the virus sort of take its course. And with COVID, it's pretty similar. Um, we, a lot of times we'll have, you know, recommend artificial tears to kind of help flush out the virus. And the main thing is to prevent it from being transmitted. Um, so if I do have a patient who sounds suspicious for having conjunctivitis and most commonly they'll have fever, congestion, the cough and the fatigue, sort of the generalized symptoms we see with COVID, of course, I would recommend that they get tested immediately. You were mentioning about a little bit about artificial tears. I just wanted to kind of go back a little bit in terms of, do our eyes have any natural protective mechanisms, um, you know, to, to prevent disease? I mean, what are we armed with right now? Or, and, and our tears, how, give us a little anatomy and physiology lesson here insofar as our eyes. So it's pretty impressive. The eyes actually have uh, a natural immunity in the tear film. That's very, very good question. Um, we have natural enzymes and immunoglobins in our tear film to help uh, basically prevent infection going to the eye. In addition to that, you know, there's significant barrier um, between you know the cornea and to prevent things from getting into the eye. Um, from the tear film. But generally speaking, the tear film has this immunity, has these enzymes to break up um, uh, sort of at-risk sort of viruses and other products. And essentially what it does is it's got this sort of drainage system where it causes increased tearing to flush out the irritants and uh, break them up, hopefully disable them. Everything essentially then gets either flushed down the cheek or down through uh, the nasolacrimal duct into the nose. And from there on in, into the nose, and sometimes, as we know, when we cry, our nose gets congested, our nose runs, and of course, sometimes we'll even feel some of that um, excess fluid going down the back of our throat. And of course, within the nose and the mouth and the throat, there are some additional uh, protective mechanisms to help prevent absorption of anything like a virus. Well, the good news is that we've got those tears to to protect um, our eyes. On the other hand, one of the the conditions that I understand older adults often has is dry eye, um, mm -hmm. and that requires treatment. Would since we have older adults who are again at a greater risk of contracting COVID nineteen, if they have dry eyes, could that make it more of a possibility of, of, you know, of getting COVID-19? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the natural sort of segue. Unfortunately, a tear film does provide protection, but a lack of tear film would then, of course, uh, you would be lacking that protection that a good tear film would provide. Not having a good tear film definitely does increase the susceptibility of the eye to infection, besides causing its own problems, such as redness, pain, um, and even burning. So that's one of the reasons why it does help. I mean, in fact, I'm speaking from myself. I, I take a medication called Restasis. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what, I think, yeah, two times a day. And uh, that does help to keep my eyes more moist. So I would assume that that's probably the treatment of choice for uh, um, older adults with dry eyes. Um. Well, I mean, definitely for stasis helps um, folks with kind of more moderate to severe dry eyes. Mm -hmm. Most people do fine with just artificial tear supplementation. Um, there's a whole bunch of products, when, uh, probably a whole section in most drugstores, you'll see where there's tears, everything from just simple rewetting drops, which are essentially basic saline for patients who have contact lenses to more um, longer lasting, even gel drops, which provide a thicker sort of protection for the surface of the eye. Um, so that is a great first line, you know, and everybody sort of finds their medium that feels good to them. Um, and, and speaking of which, everybody's been home more because of all the quarantining situations. I've definitely been seeing more dry eyes because folks are using their eyes more. They're reading more, they're on the computer more, watching more TV. So definitely I've been having more patients complaining of eye strain and dry eye issues. So you would certainly suggest as an ophthalmologist that it's really important to protect our eyes from respiratory viruses and just protect our eyes in general, yes? Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. I often tell my patients that if you're, you know, because I have a lot of patients working from home now and they're on the computer for five plus hours a day. And I'll say, you know, take that water break, you know, every hour or so, get up, walk around, drink some water, put some tears in your eyes, maybe close your eyes and rest for a minute or two. It's amazing how much just those few minutes of a break will kind of help recharge everything and protect your eyes. And I, I, I guess. It's more, it, from what I'm hearing you say, it sounds like it's more eye strain uh, rather than maybe some kind of infection. Uh, would you agree? Or, or is it, can there be both? Uh, in relation to? Well, just in terms of right now, as you said, during this COVID period of people yes. are looking at their computers more. So as I said, it, it sounds like it's more eye strain or uh, that they need to like rest their eyes rather than um, maybe getting any kind of infection. Right. But, but it does kind of tie into the dry eyes. The more we use our eyes, you know, we're concentrating, we blink less. Okay. Um, so we do dry out the more we sort of read, for sure, or even watch TV. Okay, okay. So you mentioned conjunctivitis or pink eye a, a little earlier, and that are you seeing a lot of that from your patients? Because um, as I was preparing these questions, 
that was the condition that seemed to stand out the most was the conjunctivitis. And I was, is there, is this a big deal right now? Is this kind of the, the disease that ophthalmologists are, are dealing with the most? Um, what would you tell us? Well, there's, um, you know, it's been reported that pink eye can happen with uh, coronavirus infection, mm-hmm. but it's only less than 3% of the cases. Okay. Um, so I know um, myself and a lot of our colleagues are, you know, most of the time for pink eye, especially right now, we're handling that by telemedicine. Um, and, um, and of course, at that time, we're kind of discussing other symptoms with the patients with their body, you know, so if they have other symptoms of possible coronavirus infection, then of course, we're typically referring them on. Most of the time, luckily, with conjunctivitis, supportive measures like adding more artificial tears um, to kind of help drain some of that extra discharge, cool compresses for the swelling can sort of help patients sort of get through the pink eye. The biggest thing when I see or talk with a patient with pink eye is I recommend that they have to be very careful about not spreading it throughout their family. And we do think even with coronavirus that that's a possibility to spread it um, to their family members just from the pink eye discharge. Um, if anybody's ever known or had a family member or a child with pink eye, you'll know that it's not uncommon for that to sort of cause an outbreak in um, school settings. Um, and you have to be very careful about you know not touching your eyes, washing your hands. A lot of times if I have a patient with pink eye, I won't let them go to work when we used to go to work mm-hmm. um, for, you know, several days. Um, and if, especially if they have um, symptoms of coronavirus, they're going to be quarantining at home, I'm sure. And I usually also refer them to their medical doctor to talk about testing and um, evaluating their other symptoms. So for the most part, then, this conjunctivitis is really the only specific uh, eye disease that you're seeing that you can actually call it. One thing that strikes me about COVID is the fact that, well, most of the time you hear that it's the, the primary symptoms, it's respiratory. It's the cough, uh, fever, um, trouble breathing. But what surprises me most is, is that COVID seems to affect every other part of the body in some way, the kidneys uh, can increase stroke. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess, as I said, I just wanted to, if, if some of these situations occur, then is it possible that maybe the eyes are all also affected then? I mean, that you get called in for somebody who actually has COVID um, because their eyes are affected by I mean, say I, I'm thinking to like a really severe case of maybe somebody who is already on a ventilator. I mean, do mm-hmm. you as an ophthalmologist get called in to uh, in as a referral uh, to you know provide advice for somebody who is really really sick with this disease? Has there been that experience for you? No, um, you know, usually by the time that they're um, at that point when they're on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be, the patient won't be verbal to be able to tell us about vision loss. Okay. Um, so if there's external symptoms, which would typically be conjunctivitis symptoms, um, then um, of course, you know, we would 
you know, consult with the team and, you know, talk about supportive measures for the eye, sometimes even culture, if there's, if they don't know what the diagnosis is, but usually they've, by that time they've kind of figured it out mm-hmm. based upon the appearance on the chest x-rays and CT scans. Um, but there's no question that there have been some reports of um, other things that can happen, you know, with the eye, probably more zebras, but there have been some reports of uh, what they believe is an inflammatory based uh, optic neuritis. And, you know, what can cause strokes in the brain can certainly affect the visual pathway that runs through the brain, uh, or, you know, even the retinas. But we haven't really, we've had a couple of reports and there may be more to that as sort of people recover and are going to see their eye doctors. We may find more incidences of more severe vision uh, threatening sort of effects of COVID. Um, I think we're just figuring out this disease still, you know, even though we've had too many people infected in our world, um, it's, it's a little bit nebulous and it's not following the disease patterns that we've known in the past, obviously. One of the things that I would like to have you share, Dr. Katera, is what, when you and I were talking about these questions a couple of days ago about the, uh, the physician in China who was uh, uh, examining his patient and, and what happened. I think that's a really interesting story. I think it's, I think I would love to talk about him. I think he's a hero. Dr. Li Wenliang, I'm not sure, hopefully I'm saying it properly. Um, he was probably one of the original whistleblowers in Wuhan. He's an ophthalmologist, 33 years old. And in late December, he started to post on social media to his colleagues about the SARS-like um, new virus that was causing mainly pneumonia symptoms. Um, and actually, um, he even said, I'll probably get in trouble for posting this. And sure enough, the Chinese government uh, made him print a retraction on that same social media site just a week or two later. Unfortunately, he developed the virus from an asymptomatic glaucoma patient he was examining uh, in um, early January and passed away by the end of January. So he himself was a victim of coronavirus. 33-year-old ophthalmologist, and he left behind a pregnant wife and grieving parents. Um, and ironically, his parents developed the infection but recovered. And so it's, it is the story of a hero and also a bit of a tragic story. Well, and not only that, it really reinforces what all of us, I mean, I certainly don't practice anymore, even though I have a nursing background, but mm-hmm. but the heroism of physicians and nurses who have had to handle um, patients in hospitals or even in other places and putting their own lives at risk. I mean, it is just an incredible story of, of the sacrifices that have resulted because healthcare professionals believe in providing care. So... Yes, true. One of my patients was telling me um, her granddaughter is a nurse who's um, with a respiratory background. So she's oftentimes on the COVID ward and her her son, who happens to be the child's grandfather, has been taking care of her two kids who are young since March. So this poor mother has not been able to physically see and hug her children since March. I mean, talk about sacrifice. Yes. I mean, as a mother myself, I my heart goes out to her and, and all the first responders who are 
making tremendous sacrifices and showing incredible bravery. Well, and, and then the final aspect in, in this is also that even though people may contract COVID and recover, there still sometimes are long-lasting effects that can affect all parts of the body, which you were referring to early. So it must be incredibly difficult for you as a physician and you and your colleagues of both in your own specialty as well as others to know what to expect and how to treat your patients as well as protecting yourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have developed a system and, you know, the CDC has been very helpful in addition to the American Academy of Ophthalmology to help us sort of um, figure out how to create a new way of sort of practicing. Um, You know, there was in March, uh, mid-March, the American Academy of Ophthalmology and CDC recommended that all physicians sort of stop all non-urgent care. And we were seeing emergencies. of course, but, um, you know, we essentially closed down for everything except emergencies. And then somewhere along the way, what's not urgent becomes urgent. You know, this is unfortunately uh, a marathon, not a sprint, as we're all discovering. And so we have had to open up and see patients for their regular care. And But we've changed significantly the way that we've um, been doing that. And I'm sure, and a lot of my colleagues have as well. Well. And that is a perfect place to take a break here. Um, uh, And we're going to talk a lot about that more in the second half of the program. So just wanted to let our listeners know that, again, we are talking with Dr. Reshma Katira, an ophthalmologist with the Retina Group of Washington. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Reshma Katira, an ophthalmologist with the Retina Group of Washington, and she's giving us all kinds of information about how eye health is so important during COVID. And uh, we wanted to talk now, Dr. Katira, about different scenarios that people may have uh, with their eyes and different topics. So the first one that I wanted to ask you about is contact lenses. That's a really lots of folks wear them now are are contact lens wears at greater risk of eye infection because of covid-19 i'll start that and then maybe we'll talk about glasses and field sh- face shields mhm uh probably yes um you know there's been reports and it's generally accepted now that uh coronavirus can be transmitted and absorbed through the conjunctiva of the eye And of course, we talked about before the importance of the tear film as protection. Most patients who wear contact lenses are tend to have dry eyes as a result. And in fact, a lot of times people sort of outgrow their contacts because their eyes get too dry and they can't wear them anymore. So there's the dry eye aspect. And then there's the aspect of their conjunctiva is exposed to um, aerosolized droplets, which we believe are the main source of coronavirus, you know, we even know that if somebody were to cough or sneeze in a 
uh, a space that the virus can actually stand, stay in the air for up to three hours. So it may not, it's probably more likely to happen if somebody were to cough in your face, of course. But theoretically speaking, you could um, walk through a space that somebody had coughed in before. You could be wearing a mask and um, there's a small risk of transmission and absorption through the conjunctiva. What do you suggest? Uh, do you think people who wear contact lenses, you know, is glasses, is that a good alternative? Might they wear glasses more? And tell us a bit about that. And also these face shields that we're seeing now. What What do you think about that? So definitely a lot of my colleagues who are doctors are choosing to wear their glasses as opposed to contact lenses to support, sort of protect their um, their eyes from transmission with COVID. Also, the glasses to help remind people not to rub their eyes and touch their face, which is a big thing that Dr. Fauci talks about. And it's very important um, because you could touch a doorknob and rub your eyes or, you know, rub your nose inherently and uh, give yourself the virus that way. Um, the face shields are have become very, very common now, uh, particularly in the medical field. And it's Definitely anybody who's in a high-risk situation, I think it's a good idea. And it sort of protects the whole face. I'm sure folks have seen this in various different um, news segments where they see um, a first responder. There's sort of like this uh, band around the forehead and head, and then this large plastic that extends down over the entire face. And that certainly helps prevent um, aerosolized droplets from getting to the face. Usually folks are wearing a mask underneath as well uh, to prevent breathing in any aerosolized droplets. And of course, it protects the eyes, the nose and the mouth and helps prevent you from, you know, touching your face inherently. It's, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, I see this all the time. Are face shields actually available like in the drugstore or do they have to be special ordered? What do you know about that? Um, you can order them. Um and they, they have become fairly mainstream. I've seen a fair number of patients and uh, family members coming in with face shields. Um, so, so certainly anybody who feels they want one could get one. Um, but, you know, I think most people would do fine with masks, wearing their glasses. You can even get, um, if you're very concerned, if you're going to be a situation that's where you can't socially distance, you can certainly even just get a pair of safety glasses, you know, if you don't wear glasses. Um, you know, there's more than one way to do this. I think most of the time I'm seeing folks who are themselves sort of high risk or first care, you know, first responders who are really wearing the face shields. Well, the thing that I was also going to ask you about when we were talking about wearing your glasses more, and since I'm a glasses wearer, I'm especially interested to hear what you have to say about foggy eyeglasses and wearing <laughs> a face mask. That, you know, the first time I put the mask on, I, I thought, well, this is fun. You know, it's a little hard to buy groceries when you're walking around trying to check out the oranges or whatever, and you can't see. So what do you as a an ophthalmologist suggest? I'm sure there's probably things on the internet, but I'd like to hear it from an eye expert as to how <laughs> you can prevent 
foggy eyeglasses when oh, wearing a mask. Foggy eyeglasses are such a big thing. All my patients coming in are just a little bit blurry because their <laughs> glasses are fogged. And we, of course, make everybody wear a mask in our office, staff and patients included. Mm-hmm. So there's, we have to have a little margin when we're looking at visual results now because <laughs> we know that everyone's going to have a little bit of fogginess on their glasses. Um, there are a couple tricks though. So um, when I do surgery and myself and most of our, my colleagues, we've all learned that, you know, cause when we are leaning into the microscope, the microscope will fog cause we're wearing masks in surgery. And what we've been doing for years is to put a little piece of tape um, around the bridge of the nose and a, the indent around the nose towards the cheek to prevent essentially the um, hot air from coming up that, that way. Um, and that works very well. You know, one, it keeps the mask in place. So it prevents you from having to keep pushing it up your nose. Uh, and sort of, it also see, makes a seal there. So the hot air isn't fogging, um, glasses you might be wearing. Have you also heard about the possibility of washing your glasses in soapy water and that the film kind of prevents the fog? Have you heard anything about that? Yeah. Um, and that can work. And I know some I mean, um, folks would even use spit, right? When you're um, everyone at one point, although it sounds completely disgusting in this era, but um, and do what you have to do, looking, right? <laughs> right, right. It'd be super uh, snorkeled or, you know, you know that they would use there's you can buy certain um, chemicals, which are similar. They call them defoggers. Um, which you could wipe on your glasses. Soap would be a little bit hard because you really have to wash it off. Otherwise, it's going to leave a residue of its own and blur the glasses. Um, but um, they actually sell defoggers for you know scuba divers and snorkelers. We actually use uh, a version of that in surgery as well sometimes um, for some of the lenses we use. Uh, and, uh, I, I don't advise using spit, but spit could work as well. Saliva. Kind of last resort, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, another trick that, um, I've learned is, um, putting tissue kind of around that area. And some of my staff members prefer that because they feel that the tissue helps one prevent chafing around the nose, but it also kind of adds a little bit of a barrier Um, for, again, the air sort of coming up the top of the mask and fogging the glasses. Well, that's also very helpful information. One other uh, question in terms of various situations is eye makeup. Of course, many uh, older adult women wear eye makeup. And uh, so have you started giving precautions or, you know, advising older women patients or uh, about Wearing eye makeup, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I, eye makeup is safe. I wear eye makeup myself. Okay. Um, but you have to be a little bit careful um, with the current situation. It's very, definitely want to be washing your hands at least 20 seconds, just like the CDC recommends before touching your face and your eyes. Um, and just in general with eye makeup, you want to make sure you're washing it off at the end of the day. Um, even using sort of a hot towel to kind of help wipe away the residue. The heat will also help open up the glands to get those little microscopic particles that sometimes go into the tear glands. Sort of opens the tear glands, help all those little particles come out, help to prevent irritation of the eyes in general. Um, And also, you know, particularly the wet sort of eyeliners and mascaras, um, you want to make sure if, 
they're more than several months old, say six months, you probably just want to be changing them because the wet mascaras have been cultured and you don't want to know what was in those cultures. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah, that's that's uh, good advice. Another thing, of course, that during this time of COVID, we're all using hand sanitizers. And again, if we happen to touch our eyes uh, after we've used a hand sanitizers, are you seeing that people are getting eye irritations? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, the hand sanitizers have a high degree of alcohol by necessity. And that is not something you want to be getting into your eye because it will cause a significant amount of burning. Uh, theoretically, you could even get a chemical burn of the, the surface of the eyes so if you got enough in your eye. So you want to be very careful about wash, you know, if you're using hand sanitizers, especially not to be touching your eye. Well, good advice because you tend to forget, you know, you use it because you want to do the right thing and then you touch your eyes and then you've got another problem. So, so let's, let's, you talked a little bit earlier, Dr. Katera, about going to see your eye care professional. Uh, overall, is it still, I shouldn't, I should, uh, ask this a different way. How risky is it to see an eye care professional right now during COVID-19? There's always going to be a little bit of a risk anywhere you go these days. Um, but eye care professional offices and just like dentalists are, you know, also seeing patients, you know, there comes a time where it's, it's probably better for you to go be seen and get the care you need than to be afraid to go get the care you need. Unfortunately, um, I'm seeing several patients who are coming in way too late. You know, they've lost vision. Um, I had a patient the other day who um, has regular injection treatments for macular degeneration, and she came back, uh, and last time I seen her was January. She was supposed to come in March for her next treatment, and she lost several lines of vision, unfortunately had a hemorrhage. And of course, we restarted treatment just the other day, but she may not get back all the vision she had. Um, so there's always a balance there. Just to kind of add as a comfort measure, doctor's offices are taking this very seriously. You know, I know in my office, it's very different. We are not letting, we have uh, somebody outside the office screening patients. Uh, a lot of times we're even calling patients the day before, running the list of questions in terms of any recent travel, exposure, um, you know, obviously symptoms of coronavirus. Um, and before the patients even come in, everybody's required to wear a mask. If they don't have a sufficient mask, we give them a mask. Um, we're checking temperatures on everybody, including staff. Um, and we're not allowing family members into the office unless it's absolutely necessary. We've socially distanced our waiting room. We're trying to get, we're seeing less patients so we can get patients in and out much faster leaching all the chairs in the exam rooms, the doorknobs, everything between patients. So everybody's taking this seriously because this is a very serious condition that I would be heartbroken if any of my patients were to develop coronavirus, uh, possibly from my office. One of the things that you mentioned, of course, you're concerned about the, the possible symptoms of, of COVID. If you, for your patients or even anybody who's listening today, are there certain eye-related symptoms that, you know, don't hesitate, 
you need to go see an ophthalmologist. What what would you say to our listeners out there as to when what you know when you have these symptoms, by all means come to see us. You know, come to see me as an ophthalmologist. Right, for sure. You know, the the most practical ones would be blurred vision, um, centrally or peripherally. Um, the symptoms of conjunctivitis we talked about before, you know, redness, burning, increased discharge, um, new floaters or flashes of light could indicate a retinal tear and possibly a retinal detachment. And those are very urgent things that need to be seen uh, sooner rather than later. And if if somebody has something, uh, you know, one of these kinds of symptoms, is it possible then, like, can for your office or the office of other ophthalmologists that that they should get in touch with their ophthalmologist, or is this something that they should go to the emergency room? What would you advise them? I would recommend that they get in touch with their ophthalmologist. Okay. Um, unfortunately, emergency rooms are sort of. Um, not well equipped to do a complete eye exam. Um, and, you know, we have special equipment. So if anybody's ever been to an ophthalmologist's office, you know, there's this microscope looking thing called a slit lamp. Um, you know, we dilate patients to see the front and the back of the eye. Um, and um, really, you know, you can get a, a screening examination in an emergency room and some emergency rooms even do have slit lamps, but, um, you know, ultimately, a lot of times they'll sort of kind of um, decide how urgent the patient is and then refer them to the ophthalmologist. So if it's something where you can go straight to the ophthalmologist or at least consult with one over telemedicine um, to determine how urgent the matter is, I think that's probably um, just a better overall way to handle the situation. So when you have patients who are coming in, now, are, are these um these patients still going through the routine eye examination of, you know, putting the eye chart on the wall and, and checking your vision and all of these and for nearsightedness or farsightedness. So is, have you really now, um, is it business as usual again for um, your patients or are you still kind of limiting who you see? How, how does that work if somebody calls up and says, well, it's time for my six-month exam? I, do you encourage them to come in? What's, yes. What's the situation? Right. And we are seeing patients for regular uh, care, not just emergency situations. Um, and that's important because, you know, a lot of patients who come in for regular care, a lot of times we do identify things that, you know, that were perhaps asymptomatic, the pressure was high, or there's a retinal hole, you know, so until you get your examination, we don't know really what's going on with the eye. And the eye is unique in the sense that, you know, unfortunately, some things like a follow-up can be handled with telemedicine, but um, a lot of times we really need to examine the patients to see certain things and measure the pressure and things like that. So something like conjunctivitis, you know, we can probably handle via telemedicine or a well-established patient where we're checking in to, you know, refill glaucoma medicines who's been very controlled. Certainly a couple telemedicine visits we can get in there, but to really get the, uh, an accurate vision reading, get a pressure response, you know, a pressure reading, dilate and look at the retina, 
Um, and certainly if they need a procedure like a laser or an injection for macular degeneration, unfortunately, those patients really have to be seen um, in person. Did your practice uh, do telemedicine prior to COVID? So it's interesting. Telemedicine was not uh, covered. So I know there was there we were doing telemedicine um, as a screening for outreach for areas that don't have access to care. Um, but telemedicine was they really had to change, you know, reimbursement, set up this whole protocol for all physicians to be able to do telemedicine. So you're seeing um, telemedicine, I mean, in other areas of medicine, some of my colleagues are still doing largely telemedicine because their particular area of expertise, you know, is suited for it. Um, but, you know, what was nice is that the, the um, CMS, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and then the private insurers followed and had to set up protocols for reimbursement for telehealth and even telecalls um, just because of this unique situation with coronavirus. Do you anticipate now, you've mentioned it already, but will there be a, a certain area of your practice that will now be telehealth all the time? Or, you know, what, what do you kind of see for the future for your practice and, and ophthalmology in general? I mean, do you anticipate that there's going to be a lot of changes as to how um, routine visits as well as, as addressing the issues that we talked about earlier, the kinds of conditions that are especially uh, prevalent in older adults. Uh, are these, what do you see? Well, um, ophthalmology, like, you know, like I had started to allude to before, unfortunately does not fit very well with telemedicine. I mean, if I have a patient who has, um, conjunctivitis or who is afraid to come in um, because either they have active symptoms or they have like they're going through cancer therapy or something like that where they're really, really high risk. I will do telemedicine and telecalls just to kind of check in with them and see, um, you know, how they're doing and what needs to be done. Um, certain areas of medicine, though, um, like my friend is an endocrinologist, you know, where you know, the follow-up sometimes if they have the lab results and they can talk with the patient and see how they're doing and measuring things and everything else are very well suited for telemedicine. And I think that that perhaps may be here to stay, hopefully, you know, certainly it's more convenient for the patient. Um, so I, I definitely think that um, the way of practicing medicine has changed, not just with telemedicine. I mean, I don't anticipate there's a time where I'm not going to be wearing a mask in the office and gloves and um, and I think this these extra precautions that we're taking to really bleach things, um, you know, between patients, um, so that there's no contamin cross contamination. I I don't think some of these things are going to go away. In all fairness, and one of my patients the other day said a very something very profound. She said, "The handshake is dead." And it's sad to think about that, but, you know, this concept of, I used to shake every patient's hand. So my patients used to come in because I've known them for years and hug me and ask about the children and, you know, visits have become a little bit less uh, personal, you know, and, and it, it is a little bit sad to see, you know, in all areas where 
we're becoming less social and certainly less physical when we see friends and family members. Um, and I don't know, I think this is going to be something that sort of leaves a stigma with us for years to come. Do you think that there will be a change in terms of your surgical practice? Um, you know, obviously there's lots of older adults who have to have cataract surgery, but other types of eye surgeries as well. Have you, has there been a change in scheduling different types of eye surgeries and, or do you recommend that people are, should postpone? Are you suggesting that they postpone? Are they postponing? What's the situation insofar as eye surgery? So um, eye surgery has um, started again. It started probably in early June. Almost all the testing, all the places where people are going are uh, required for surgery. The surgery centers are requiring a COVID test um, usually four to seven days before the surgery for every patient. Um, so patients who have had recent travel have, you know, may have, you know, one of the criteria that the CDC puts out in certainly active symptoms or have a positive COVID test are essentially not allowed to come to the hospital or ambulatory surgical center for surgery. And that's for the protection of other patients as well as the staff. Um, that being said, um, cataract surgery has resumed. I'm doing more routine surgeries as well but not at the same rate. You know, there's more precautions in terms of cleaning that takes longer between cases. Um, and of course, some patients are putting things off just because they're concerned with coronavirus. Um, looking at the stats, it looks like about 75% of the pre-COVID rates of surgery are occurring right now. So it's, it's definitely picked up completely compared to what it was in March, but it's not the same as what it was before March. And would you suggest that, that they not postpone these procedures? Is there anything that you can tell them that would make folks feel more comfortable? What would you tell them? I mean, uh, you know, you hear different things like stroke symptoms or that, that people need to come to the hospital and this, um, because the hospital actually is more safe than maybe in the past, because of course people were afraid. What would, what, what would you tell your patients and just our listeners about uh, these procedures, these surgical procedures? That's a very good point. And I think it's very important for people to realize that if you're having a problem or you have a condition that needs care, it's not a good idea to wait. We're not talking about a few weeks here. I mean, I would love it if we had a vaccine and this all went away next week, but most likely this is going to be months before this is resolved. And a lot of conditions cannot wait months for treatment. And the concern, of course, is that if you wait that long and even with treatment, some things just won't get better. There may be permanent damage that you will have to live with. And that is not a good, good thing to do. You know, if you have a condition, please seek medical care. So the final question, we're getting close to the end of the program here, Dr. Katera. There's always lots of resources out there, some that are good and perhaps some that are not so good. What would you suggest that um, people look for or look at um, insofar as resources to learn more about eye conditions and especially care, eye care during COVID-19? Um, so the CDC is a great resource and they've definitely been 
had a nice leadership role in terms of guiding all of us in terms of medical professionals as well as you know other areas of um you know for patients as well as you know first responders in terms of how to sort of handle the situation they have um come up with criteria um for for medical professionals in terms of how to screen for patients uh, as well as how to safely see patients. Um, and uh, so the CDC website is a great resource. The American Academy of Ophthalmology is also a great resource. Um, in addition to the American Medical Association, American College of Surgeons, um, a lot of those um, societies have really helped taking a leadership role to help guide the rest of us in terms of how to function with these new times. That's well said, and that's a good note to to thank Dr. Reshma Katira, an ophthalmologist with the Retina Group of Washington, for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on the show. So, by the way, if you want to listen to past radio programs and watch Aging Matters TV episodes, visit facebook.com forward slash Aging Matters WERA. You'll find on that site both the internet addresses for the radio shows and the TV episodes, and I hope that you will tune in and listen to the programs as well as watch the TV episodes. If you like what you hear on Aging Matters and value the opportunity to learn about issues of interest to you and your families, please consider supporting Arlington Independent Media with a donation. All you have to do is log on to WERA.FM and click Donate. Your gift will be most welcome and greatly appreciated. I want to thank Robert Winship for handling the technical aspects of today's program. And of course, as always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music